This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. The BFM Breakfast Grill, connecting you to the top people and ideas. Powered by U-Mobile. 5G now with you. BFM 89.9, I am Chong Jen Sun and this is The Breakfast Grill. Many organisations have realised the importance and benefits of sustainability, which ultimately gives it a higher survival rate. A case in point is UPS, which operates in an industry where transportation accounts for almost 30% of US greenhouse gases emissions. This makes enhancing transportation efficiency crucial to remain sustainable. In it adopted an AI system called Orion, a room optimizer that aims to minimize the number of turns during the delivery, saving up to 10 million gallons of fuel per year. Despite many positive trends, surveys point to a low percentage of firms changing their business model to take advantage of trends in sustainability. Why is this so? And how important is talent and change management? Join us in the studio is Peter McAteer. He's author of various articles which include Which Sustainability Comes Change, which is largely the subject of conversation today. Peter has been a featured speaker at dozens of global conferences and has served as an adjunct faculty of Columbia University's Graduate School of International and Public Affairs. He currently serves as his advisor for strategy, innovation and sustainability at several organisations. Thank you for joining us this morning. Peter, I'm looking at the 2021 McKinsey survey on sustainability, which talks about the difference between a sustainability program that produces business value and one that doesn't. The results indicate that the value-creating companies are more apt to engage customers, suppliers and business partners, as well as adjust their product portfolios in their sustainability agendas. Is this the crux of sustainability that it cannot be done in isolation? Uh, well, yes, there's, there's a number of things driving this, this sort of change. So what you, um, what you tend to do is... Um, I wrote a book in 2019 with um, sustainability is the new advantage. And in part, because out of my consulting, people ask this sort of question. And so I tend to organize companies based on where they are in their transformation journey. So as you indicated, some companies are really in a compliance phase. And the companies who are in a compliance phase are just trying to respond to the, you know, the SASB requirements, the uh, sustainability accounting standards boards, things like that. Or if they're a member of a, if they're a publicly traded firm, then again, they want to respond to their exchange. Their exchange may say you need to have a policy on uh, migrant workers or something of that sort. So you have those sort of compliance people. Then you have companies who are out there trying to do something, but they're still fundamentally a legacy company. But they may be doing things on packaging optimization or uh, uh, efficiencies with their um, energy portfolio, um, uh, et cetera. And those are things you can do to generate an immediate return on investment, but you're not yet transforming your business. So I look at those companies as companies who are working on their current value model, as well as a perceived value model to distinguish them from businesses which have said, okay, we got the idea. So you take a company like a Unilever and said, we're now going to create a whole portfolio of sustainable products and services. So now they're managing two portfolios, a legacy portfolio and another one. And again, they see how they go over time. They've been doing that for several decades. And they can say accurately now that their sustainable business uh, product portfolio uh, is growing at almost twice the pace as their legacy portfolio. So that doesn't create any concern within the business. People who look at that and say, oh, yes, of course, we should invest more in the products that are growing twice as fast. But it is still unique to find the companies whose strategy is purely based on sustainability, and they've really managed to achieve a net zero sort of model 
or they're operating according to something like a circular economy business model. That's really pretty, still unique in the business. But the survey also suggests that less than one third of surveyed firms change their business models to take advantage of trends in sustainability that may be reflected in new products and services. Why is this so when the benefits are quite clear? Is this largely a cost issue? Um, no, I think we have to look at uh, sustainability as something where the maturity of this space is really quite low. Um, so when we're talking about financial modeling, you know, people have been working on that for the last 170 years. And so we've gotten quite good. You know, you get a bunch of financial people in a room and you say, let's look at the balance sheet. And no one asks you, well, what do you mean by a balance sheet? Or how do you do a balance sheet? With sustainability, we still get to that point of saying, well, what does sustainability mean in your organization? And so we have to remember that the, the, the definition we all use the, the sustainable development goals, didn't come up until 2015. That's only seven years old. So the fact that people are confused that the global reporting initiative is not aligned with the sustainable development goals, well, that's because the, the GRI, the global reporting initiative, came out in 1997 before the goals. Um, so for a lot of companies who've been working on some things, there's just this debate about what should I really do? And some will be working under the auspices of the SASB. Others will be bringing in the task force on um, uh, climate disclosures, which is voluntary. Others will look be under the guidance of the carbon disclosures project, et cetera. So we have all this debate going on. And what really has to happen is that public policy has to catch up. So to me, it's no uh, secret that where companies are more advanced are places like the European Union, which has gotten public policy right more often than not. And because it's such a large market, people see the opportunity that the playing field is level. They know what they need to do with water, with energy, with waste, et cetera. So it's much easier to look at those longer term investments. Other countries like Malaysia, it's a little bit more debatable um, because in Malaysia, you're more of an export economy. So the question is, what's happening in your customer markets? And that dictates a lot to what you do. So again, I think this maturity is part of our problem. Just getting the definitions correct, things are evolving every year, which means it's very hard to maintain expertise unless you really devote a lot of energy to making sure all of your people. Um, are up to date on these things. And that, again, because a lot of people focus on things like packaging optimization, only a small number of people in your organization work on that. The rest of the people's job didn't change. And I think that's the task for many companies. If you're a bank and you turn around and say, well, how does my teller's job change tomorrow because of sustainability? And they may not know. Maybe it doesn't. And that's the difficulty of how do you translate all these wonderful ideas down into the business? And how do you make a business model like circularity, um, or clean capitalism or, or something of that sort, real for the people within the organization. All right, Peter, that brings me to my next question. Before a company decides to adopt sustainable practices, there obviously needs to be management reforms and a concerted effort right at the top. How important is then talent and change management? Well, talent and change management are absolutely essential to uh, scale, right? So uh, one of the reasons companies don't make the full commitment is because of the cost and risk implications of getting that wrong. Um, so I think the first thing that companies have to do is they have to sort of accept accountability that corporations are both the problem and the solution. We cannot solve climate change unless corporations take the lead. And in particular, that means that people in a management position now are the only ones who can really affect the 2030 agenda. You know, if you're going to school in an MBA program, well, you can't really affect that agenda because you're not in a position to manage resources yet. So it really is 
the companies who are there. They also have to find opportunity. Um, if you have a legacy product and you're just worried about protecting that asset, like an oil company, then you're you're not fully embracing the idea that climate change is a threat and I need to find an opportunity in a hydrogen economy or an EV economy or something else. Um, and then companies have to commit to creating a transformation plan, right? So the transformation plan always has to have sort of a North Star. Where are we going? An aspirational vision of how the company will be with a transformation. And then the hard part is to say, well, where's the starting point? You know, how am I going to manage and how? what's the distance between A and B? Um, and then companies simply have to recognize that because we're not meeting our global targets, that the pressure will increase. So if you really want to be a market leader, it's incumbent upon you to start thinking about those strategies of how to accelerate um, your transformation. And that's really what I talk to a lot of companies about. And that actually is what uh, I just finished a book, was just published this year, Pathways to Action, which is all about accelerating change. Um, it, it assumes that a market leader is already buying in and just yeah, now needs to know, how fast can I go? I don't want to get ahead of the market, but how fast can I go? And what are the proven strategies to make that happen? And, I, and again, I think for that small number of companies that are really recognizing the opportunity, that's what they're trying to do. Do organizations then also need to look at how job roles are being redefined since there'll be changes to the business model? Absolutely. Um, and they also have to get away from the idea that the job is fixed. Um, part of the issue with a low maturity knowledge domain is that new things are going to be happening all the time. So in part, you have to commit to redefining jobs, but you also have to commit to a much heavier investment in training and development. Um, because you can't simply say, I'll give you one week of training next year. I have no idea. It depends on how much comes down. Um, if you expect someone to be familiar, for example, with the latest IPCC report, well, that's 5,000 pages. Um, if you read all the IPCC reports, you know, that's 30,000 pages. If I add in the 27 reports from the community uh, conference of the parties um, for the uh, UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, well, there's 27 of those. And that doesn't count the biodiversity programs, which there's 16 conference of the parties on that. So all of this together uh, amounts to hundreds of thousands of pages of new information that you somehow have to distill in the organization. And so this is where you really have to think about the difference between generalist roles and specialist roles. So I break this down. I call something a C profile. And if you think of a C as a squared off corners, I say there is some content of enduring value that does not change. So if you want to do causal loop modeling or something like that, that's the same. Um, Michael Porter's uh, forces of competitive differentiation remain the same. However, context varies. And that requires your climate competencies have to keep evolving over time. Um, and uh, well, beyond that, you have a core competency that's evolving. So if you're in finance, you now have to get used to dual materiality. What does that mean? And that's going to change every year because that environmental value creation and social value creation have got a long way to catch up to our understanding of, of financial uh, valuation. So you can't let the one dominate while the other is mature in place. So I think the human resource professionals really should be uh, more front and center um, in these transitions. They have a much more important role to play. Um, and I also think that um, leaders have to take um, uh, the example of creative companies and lead from behind. You've got to show people the way. You've got to encourage risk taking. Uh, you have to encourage a lot more training and development. Um, and you have to take advantage of talent planning across what is now four generations in the workforce because the motivations of each of those four generations relative to the sustainability is potentially different. And therefore, you have to your leaders have to know that 
Why are people doing what they're doing? Why are they motivated to do what they're doing? On the breakfast grill this morning is Peter McAteer. He's an author of various articles which include With Sustainability Comes Change, which is the subject of conversation today. When we come back, we will speak to him on how businesses should balance between economic value creation and social creation, the scope and speed of any organizational change, how do companies balance between corporate social responsibility and maximizing shareholders' profits? BFM 89.9. You are listening to The Breakfast Grill, brought to you by U-Mobile. 5G now with you. BFM 89.9, welcome back to The Breakfast Grill. In the hot seat is Peter McAteer. He's an author of various articles which include With Sustainability Comes Change, Before the break, we spoke on why companies are still resisting sustainability, how talent development professionals are responding to these changing sustainability trends, and what questions should an organisation be asking to ensure a smooth transition to become a more sustainable company. Peter, for decades, organisations have been focused on economic value creation. With sustainability becoming a relatively new issue, how do they balance this with social value creation? Well, this is a struggle, and this is a struggle for 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 companies. Um, there's clearly companies out there um, who are pure plays. Um, uh, you know, so example, a plug power kind of company, which is working on hydrogen fuel cells. Well, their whole company is dedicated to this, or a Tesla, um, which is dedicated to this. Uh, that challenge is different for them um, than it is for a large legacy company. Um, so if you are in the uh, the palm oil business in, in, in Malaysia or if you're making nitrobutyl rubber gloves or something like that, there's aspects of your business where it's very difficult um, to make the transition, particularly if you're on the end of a very long supply chain. Um, so I think the, the, the issue for companies is uh, how do you create a dialogue at the executive level when we sit down to review our financial performance so that we're talking about four capital or six capitals, depending on the company and how you are, um, so that you're always talking about human capital. How are we evolving the people in the organization to uh, to be more conscious of the new capabilities they need? Uh, in that instance, you're seeing uh, the Security Exchange Commission in the United States setting new requirements that companies may be required report on their human capital issues. So again, you're seeing this evolve with public policy uh, in various places. And then there's the issue of natural capital, which is difficult. But again, you see the leading companies out there um, creating innovative partnerships. So um, Dow Chemical, as an example, uh, created a partnership with the Nature Conservancy because Dow Chemical realized that in a warming earth, water is going to be a more precious resource and they need lots of water. So beyond looking at efficiencies, they partnered with them to try to get to the idea of, well, what's the value of us setting aside a thousand acres to preserve a wetland? Does that improve our ability to have ready access to water in the future? Um, and so a lot of companies are beginning to see there are certain values to that. And that's why government, again, has a real role to play. Um, and carbon credits are a perfect example because carbon credits are very specifically designed to transfer wealth from one organization to another to say, um, if you're in a difficult to decarbonize industry, I'm going to force you through a carbon credit to effectively subsidize um, the sequestration of carbon by someone else. So that allows you to create some basic building blocks. But the social value creation part is hard, which is why a lot of companies, when they look at the 17 SDGs, say, I don't know what I do on hunger or poverty or 
helping young children get into grade school or helping with uh, infant mortality. They have a real difficulty with that. Um, and that's where education, I think, is the key. You've got to get people constantly talking about this. And one of the things I don't see in organizations is I don't see them changing their foundational training programs. I don't see them changing the new employee orientation programs. I don't see them, see them changing their management transition programs. And those things should change right now. Um, uh, you can't have an intelligent dialogue in a company with people who are generally ignorant on the topic. Right, Peter. I found it interesting in your article that you talked about what the talent development and leadership teams must consider that affect the scope and speed of any organizational change, and one of which is the market changing because of technology, innovation, or public policy changes. This assumption assumes that management can react quickly, but historically, many companies are left behind by technological change. So how can this be mitigated? Well, I think when I talk to companies, um, I say that first and foremost, again, unlike any other change in the market, um, things are going to happen whether you like it or not, whether you move fast or not. Um, now, there's been lots of studies out there that say, basically, we can do most of the uh, changes we need uh, without new technology. Right. So technology is really not the barrier with rare exceptions. So maybe if you're in airlines, yes, it's true. We have not solved the problem of how to get away from fossil fuels for, for air travel. But in a lot of other industries, we, we have. Um, so I think the discussion that technology is the barrier is a, is a red herring in, in a lot of uh, companies. Um, and so I try to get that out of people's head and say it's really not the problem. So to me, what companies have to do is you start on the process – of making sure you're in compliance. Um, you do everything you can to that. And then I tend to talk to companies about eight things you can do right now to generate a current return on investment. Get in and do that. But when you do that, you have to be thinking longer term. So the short-sighted company just gets the savings. The long-term thinking company says, no, I'm going to now use that as a development experience for up-and-coming emerging leaders, help them build capability so they can go forward and move on to the next phase and take what they've learned. Uh, otherwise, you're back where you were. You've improved your transportation efficiency, but you have no lesson that you can transition to the rest of the organization. Now you're back in the risk bucket. Those companies are going to get left behind. And, I, and, and that's, I think, the message. Because unless you create um, significant change in the next five years, and that's it. you got five years. If you don't do it in five years, then you run into this problem of nonlinear risk. Um, because if you just warm the planet a little more, you don't increase risk by 10%, uh, it might double or triple. Um, and that's when you get caught because now you're not prepared for that risk and those companies will fall by the wayside. New emerging companies who are more nimble are going to come. And again, I'm not saying anything that's not typical of after every recession, um, you reset the league tables. Different companies emerge. After every major technology transformation, new companies emerge, and that is likely to happen this time also. All right, Peter. I'd like to build on, again, on what you mentioned earlier about having constant dialogue within the organization, having conversations yeah. within the organization, not just among the business heads, and but all staff. So how does an organization then ingrain sustainability into the culture? And the idea is I try to outline for people uh, a learning model, um, which says, you know, there is something right now um, which you can call empirical truths. This is basic knowledge, and you can read books about this, build e-learning programs about this, things like that. And that's what everybody just has to get up to speed on. 
and because that allows you to have an intelligent conversation. Then there's another part of learning that organizations have to understand that in a fast-paced environment, and when you're searching for new business models and for new competitive advantage, that you have to be thinking of the development of new heuristics. Heuristics is new knowledge, and you've got to figure out how do I tease that out of my business experiences? How do I codify that and share that? There's a whole set of strategies to do around that. And there's a third area, uh, and this is really about helping comp- people in your organization feel like they're part of something special and this idea of, of social rituals. So how do you change social rituals? It's how you share best practice, how you share good ideas that says we're on a mission to do something important. You know, we're, we're going to save the planet. That, 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 that's a good reason to come to work every morning. And lastly, Peter, I'm sure all companies struggle with this, but how do companies balance between corporate social responsibility and maximizing shareholders' profits? Yeah, I think there's going to be a real evolution here in the idea that the purpose of a business is to generate profit for shareholders. Right? So I'm not, we don't have to go through the whole history of that and Adam Smith and all the other people who have, who have done work on that and, and the sort of the key uh, um, things that happened in the 70s about that. But you have this new idea um, you know, called stakeholder capitalism um, that's getting a lot of traction um, around the world. Same thing with the idea of the circular economy um, uh, and or re- regenerative economics. All these other titles really talk about this more expansive kind of idea. And, and the key is there, first of all, is finding value in responding to this. Um, and so the good thing about solving the climate crisis is it has an absolute benefit on other social activities. It helps us have uh, um, uh, more secure cities. It helps us with sustainable production and consumption. Um, if you don't solve climate change, you're going to create more hunger. You're going to create more inequity. Uh, when you have periods of crisis, people tend to fall back on, on the way they used to do things because it has greater certainty. And that generally means you backslide on all those other important development indicators. So I think the, the key message for companies is find value in solving the climate crisis. And in that, be good stewards of the communities in which you live and work. On that note, thank you for your time. Today on The Breakfast Grill was Peter McAteer. He's an author of various articles, which include With Sustainability Comes Change. I'm Chong Jensan, BFM 89.9. The BFM Breakfast Grill is brought to you by U-Mobile. 5G now with you. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.